Hello, hello. Welcome back for another episode of the Black on Black Education podcast. Today, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Miss Jasmine Maddox. We yet again talked about the needs of Black students, talked about what we as educators can come to the work thinking and doing to support the intersections of identities that come into our classrooms. Um, Jasmine expressed her feelings while she was in education and talks about what she's going to do as she moves into her time as an educator. And I learned so much from this episode. And so I can't wait for you guys to hear it as well. Please enjoy it. (laughs) Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Black on Black Education podcast. As always, I give my listener the opportunity to introduce themselves to the listeners, tell them who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Hello, hi, I'm Jasmine Maddox. I am a recent graduate of Albion College in Albion, Michigan, but I'm Atlanta native and I want to run for a Board of Education. Within the next couple of years, um, my degree was in education policy, which is an individually designed group that I created to learn about equity and the intersection between education and public policy. I love it. I love it. And so we are both in very similar situations. One, we both just graduated from college. Two, we both created our own major so that we could learn more about equity and inclusion in education. Um, and so, and we both want to work to transform the education system. And so mm-hmm. in our pre-call, we talked a lot about um, you studying critical race theory and intersectionality and these, these theories that kind of sit in silos of academia, um, kind of break down what those things are for folks who have not had the privilege of, of studying that in school and talk about how that knowledge helped you kind of move into the, the work that you're doing now. My love for um, critical race theory intersectionality actually started in seventh grade. My um, seventh grade teacher, Mr. Edelin, he was very big on African-American, um, making sure that black kids learn about African um, culture and different African cultures. I remember one project we had to learn about different we had to do African country, we actually have a chant. And so I took a introduction, uh, elective course in the ninth grade called Ethnic Studies. And when I got to college, I realized that I really don't know much about myself. Um, and Ethnic Studies, I learned, um, I had a major professors, um, shout out to Dr. Twenty and Dr. Lynn Verdisco Baker. Um, and many of the classes I took dealt with education um, education inclusion, the diversity of education, um, literacy pedagogy, race and ethnicity, and to um, talk about intersectionality and critical race theory. Critical race theory is the framework understanding the interrelationship between race, racism, and power. And so with that, I've been able to do research on collecting the narratives of um, people in the 1960s who were displaced due to government policy, um, it has helped me to bring several projects to my campus, such as um, starting the initiative for multicultural sorority, um, to speaking engagements with um, Carrie Gray and Sinead Dabe, who are leading disability rights activists. Mm. Um, in ethnic studies, I think um, it's not just about ethnicity, it's understanding the um, difference between ethnicity and race and all the myths. So we talked about like the Tuskegee experiments, Jenny Lou Hamer, um, and us, um, I took a class on social movements, understanding that we all can take a role in, in advocating for people. Um, it's just been a journey. Yeah. Um, because 
I think that I think my experience going to a PWI mm-hmm. definitely challenged um, intersectionality because Kim- when Kimberly Crenshaw um, created coined that term, it was to bring light to the, the situation that all of us have many identities. I am a woman. I am disabled. I am African American. I'm also cisgender, and so even as a black African American woman. I still have privilege and I still have to make sure that I am protecting our trans brothers and sisters, making sure that people with disabilities are brought to the table, making sure that the table isn't just the same voices all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't like to say vo- um, be the voice of the voices, but I would like to say amplifying voices and amplifying narrative. Mm-hmm. My mentor, Carrie Grade, um, that's what her work is, amplifying narratives of people with black people with disabilities so that they are brought to the table. There's so many different, I know that's like a lot of the question, but sorry. <laughs> it was a big question. And I think like, um, I love that you brought up disability. I love that you brought up kind of all of these different intersections of our identities that sometimes get lost in the conversation. And mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you kind of taking the time to answer the question because we too often do not, um, amplify excuse me we too often do not amplify voices too often we um want to be the speaker of everyone and i think that's a part of the reason why i have this podcast i don't want to be the speaker of everyone i want people to be able to come and give their voice and give their knowledge because there is a zero percent chance that i will ever know everything um and so i can i could sit on a podcast and talk about what i know for hours that's great but bringing in other people's voices and amplifying those voices and giving those voices a platform to talk about how we um, tackle the sorts of issues that we're trying to tackle within the education system. It requires the voices of a lot of people. So I appreciate, um, I appreciate that. Cause I also want to say that like going to a PWI, I was almost in some form or fashion, the only black person in the room mm-hmm. and being asked to speak for the whole black community. And I want to say this, to everyone that just because a person has one identity, we do not represent the whole community. I am one black voice. I am one disabled voice. I am one voice of a woman. And I feel like as people, um, what intersectionality means to me and what it means to, ch- to children is to respect that children have different home homes, different, different um, backgrounds. And we have to respect every identity they come in the classroom with. We shouldn't have to worry about, oh, if I'm going to this class, Am I going to be a disabled student today or the black student? Um, and I remember clearly um, watching a video of my mentor, Carrie Gray, and um, she said, um, I shouldn't have to worry about whether the um, my black folk, I, I don't know if this is what she said, um, and she said, I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to worry about whether my black folk or my disability vote um, should matter. Both of them should matter. And I think just understanding the intersectionality of that. We all have identities that we identify with, and that every time we approach an environment, our whole selves should be invited to an environment. We shouldn't be have to make spaces for ourselves and mm-hmm. environments. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So we're gonna kind of switch gears um, for a little bit, but I want to give you the space to kind of talk about um, something that you're passionate about, which is integrating hip hop education into curriculum in schools for students of color, but honestly for for all students, um, because culture kind of runs what, what 
runs America. We we like black culture runs um, and is in the veins of 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 all of America. And so I want you to talk about why it's so important to kind of integrate these these um, incredible pieces of of work in some cases um, into into school and into curriculum. I feel like hip hop runs everything. I, um, growing up, my dad listened to everything from NWA to Outkast and coming from Atlanta Outkast. I think hip hop, oh, let me start with this. Um, in one of my ethnic studies classes, I read a book called for, for White People Who Teach in the Hood. And that book taught me that of code switching, of how when Black students or my Black or, um, students of color go into environments and especially classrooms, we are taught that the culture we learn at home is wrong and that we don't have to, we can't bring that in the classroom. And so um, I did a presentation last October about burnout and integrating hip hop into burnout. And what I learned is there's so much research about the, um, about the success of black males having hip hop integrated to the counseling sessions to overcome trauma mm-hmm. and um and understanding their trauma. And um Dr. George the Great um wrote a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. And I use that framework of post traumatic slave syndrome and burnout and understanding hip hop. And for children, why I think it's important to bring hip hop is because music, um I've always been told I hope you know those lyrics like you know your classwork. And when I tell you every English paper I've probably written in college or every paper has some type of um, denominated um, genre, she's in some genre. I don't know how many um, papers I've written where there's a denominated lyric that is at the forefront of it. Um, One of my favorite songs by her, Queen, at the end of it, she says, embrace what makes you unique, even if it makes others uncomfortable. Yeah. Or, vic- or vic- victory. Um, be the t- to be victorious is to find joy in those small things. Um, just those, I even have a tattoo that says, and still I rise. So we have to realize that like everybody's influenced by hip hop in some form or fashion, whether it's lyrics, whether it's words, the artist, the content of it. And for um, hip hop to be integrated in the classroom, how I see it is to, for it to be implemented into counseling, English classes, whether that's um, teaching students how, what juxtaposition is, anecdotes, um, how to format, um, writing music, poetry. Um, this also form of blackout poetry. Um, I've seen hip hop integrated in, into art therapy. Um, and just understanding mindfulness, um, because mindfulness to me is a social justice mindfulness. Like I think for me personally, I take on so much in the world's problems that I don't have time to understand my existence and my um, role in situations. And so I have a whole play- playlist called the Burnout Playlist, where it's just strictly hip hop, where you have a little bit of outcast, you have a little bit of um, what are some people? You have Ice Cube. Um, NWA, um, Janelle Monae, um, just different rappers, um, and and also too, um, it would be one of the, one of my goals and one of my dreams is to make a hip hop literacy app to teach students how to read. Um, one of my biggest inspiration was a video 
about the School of Ethnic Studies in Tucson, Arizona. The School of Ethnic Studies was a um, school project um, or a class implemented into a high school. And it showed that Latinx students were graduating at higher rates when they were um, when they were taught about them themselves, about the history. And so if we like, um, and I can't say that everybody every black person is influenced by hip hop, but I do know there's a large population of people in urban within urban communities who are impacted by hip hop, whether it's on the radio, but you know, always know somebody. Also TI. He's a huge inspiration of mine. And like some of these songs that teach you how to like read, like spell, like I remember this is bananas. Like, like just like like those songs too. Like um, there's a song called Miss Independent where it's like and I and like just like those songs help you to read. And what if we um integrate that culture instead of having students to code switch of like having to fine tune their identities into the classroom? Why don't we add to it, meet students where they are, mm. instead of just dismissing that, dismissing their whole language. Because at the end of the day, um, there was an um, article, a research article that said that when students come to the classroom, white students are significantly millions, um, are have at least probably four million words less in their vocabulary than a white student. And that's damaging, troubling. Like, well, what are the resources that we have? And that's a big issue about equity. When I look at the land community, so districts, it should be no reason why 10 miles away, these schools are getting billions of dollars and it's all based on property taxes. And that's something too. Um, we'll get into it later, sorry. Hi. No, don't apologize. It's just, again, again, we have the conversation about education, education equity, education transformation. I try to stop using reform. We can't reform a system that was set up, yeah. that wasn't set up for, for a specific for a specific group of people. We have to transform the way we look at education. And so I think you touched on so many key pieces to that. Um, one that I really loved was the idea that you had the the grace and 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 space from your educators in college that allowed you to use Janelle Monet quotes, that allowed you to use uh, rap quotes. I use a lot of Meek Mill and I used a lot of um, Kendrick Lamar in, in, a lot of my, in a lot of my writing during college because again, I was given the space to use the things that I enjoyed um, to also have an academic conversation. And so when you said meeting students where they're at, meeting students where they're at doesn't mean that you have to like drop expectations. It means saying, this is who you are as a whole person. You are, are, this is your reading level. This is your math level. This is your, and this is the music that you like to listen to. How can we use the music that you like to listen to to get your reading level, to get your your math level onto um, where we're looking at for you? and where you can be and what we expect you to be. Um, it's, it's incredibly important that we exist in a space and we create schools and school cultures that do that for students, that allow students to be who they are um, and show up the way that they are. And so we talked about before, before the recording this episode, you said something so profound to me um, that, that Black students are being taught to modify their existence. And I thought that that was such an incredible way of, of, of framing it because 
for me, I went to a predominantly white school and I, that's how I would frame all that happened while I was there. Um, I, I was taught to modify my existence. I can't be too angry. I can't be too good at sports or I have to be too good at sports. I have like all of these different stereotypes that were placed upon me. Um, I had to figure out how to live within that existence of what I was supposed to be and not who I, who I was. Um, and so I want you to just talk a little bit about that. And I think you brought that up in, in, in what you said before, but just talk a little bit about that and some other ways from what you said that we can combat that. Um, for my college in particular, um, I think the biggest struggle was going from a predominantly African-American community to a predominantly white community. And within my four years of college, it was hard. Um, the systemic racism, not just from people. Um, I was an advocate. I was known for pushing the envelope on equity and inclusion. And yet, in so many spaces, especially the disability space, my voice was ignored and my voice was told that you are less than or that the conversation is bigger than you. Um, on two um, occasions when I, I spent two years building um, two lecture series and every series and for two years i was told oh you should work with this person you should work with this person we have this white leader this white leader of a disability organization but at the same time it's like this white leader is doesn't value or doesn't um want to hear what i say and everybody's pushing me to work with um this white leader but people aren't pushing her to work with me and mm. That was really, really, really um, my introduction to the realization that we are taught to modify our resistance. Um, I sat on Student Senate, which is our student government organization, and like it was very traumatic being one of the, I guess, the angry black woman and being told I'm intimidating, that um, I can shift an environment when I come into the room. just being told that the the situation i remember getting um an email from a black dean about wanting to create an inaccessibility walking tour because the buildings weren't or inaccessible and for me to bring these two speaker visits i i thought that um i was trying to educate the environment and i'm trying to say hey um but it was really amazing to see the work that the um director of facilities want to work with me on but to and it was really hard especially um and it feels like i felt the most pushback from black people Mm. um in those environments to change who i am and they're teaching the courses or they're supposed to be supporting students in these courses and i think for black students to get to the point to get to the question is when we go into these spaces we aren't we're taught how to modify ourselves whether it's language and we're like for most students um if you're african-american and you the phrase and the microaggressions you talk white and i am guilty of saying that to people and i'm guilty and i i've had it said to me and or you too bougie you think just because we have like um just and i can't um say that i haven't said it because like until i went to college i did not understand the impact of those words and mm-hmm. now in the civil rights movement what the forefront is equity and black all black lives matter and black lives matters we have to 
say that all Black Lives Matter, whether it's the language we bring, how we speak, um, when you um, significantly in social education classrooms, Black students are the majority, um, whether it's because of behavior or disability. And also, too, Black students are disproportionately um, misdiagnosed early on and with um, disabilities. I was about four when I got the ADHD um, diagnosis. And it's accurate, but for many healthcare professionals, that's too early to give a diagnosis and too early to um, be um, with these different medicines and everything. And modifying distance, mod like having to modify a distance, it's the simple question I said earlier, it was like being the only black person in the room and having to speak for the, the black community. I remember um, my first semester, I took a women in politics class and being asked to speak for the um, black community about why people vote for Trump or why people vote for um, Hillary Clinton. And just having that question asked while I'm here, it was just like, well, ask her. And I just like thought to myself, I was just like, I am fresh, 800 miles away from my family. I don't understand this, but I have a family that always taught me right from wrong, always taught me about our history. My auntie went to the, my aunt and grandma went to one of the race, most racially segregated high schools. And I went to a college preparatory schools. Oh, so let me get to college preparatory schools too. Um, the history of college, as Chris Emden said in his book, college preparatory schools are meant to uniform black students or students from um, urban environments into one narrative of like the college preparatory student and college preparatory student where well, it's the, a mold. Like I had a work experience last year and it was just like the way they treated their students and the way they police students in the classroom, you will literally have to scare the, the students and be just like silent. You have to yell at the students instead of talking to the students like they're human. And when we say modify students or modify identities, there's many different, we can hold a healing circle mm. about what that means. And just like different things. Like I remember one instance in high school where students were told, oh, they'd be working at McDonald's. That's modifying existence because like you, you, you want us to be going to like, if you weren't at my high school, if you didn't have a 21 ACT, you would push to the back burner. Because 21 ACT means you were college ready. And a large, a no, I know I'm talking a lot about this, but a large number of modifying resistance is using standards-based tests to mm -hmm. define the, the, the intellectuality or the intelligence of Black students. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you touched on so many incredibly important things in in what you said. I think modifying someone's existence happens in so many different ways. Um, you can modify the way that they look at their future. You can modify the way that they show up in a space. You can modify how they feel, how comfortable they feel using the resources that are available to them if those mm -hmm. resources are available to them. And so like the running theme of this entire conversation has been we have to we have to allow students and we have to create spaces that allow students to show up as their, as their full selves and mm -hmm. their full self might not 
might not work um, and might not be the most comfortable for you as an educator, but that's why it's your job. Your job is to change, shift, and mold and modify how you show up for your students. It's not your job to modify what the student can be or what the student will be in your classroom and in the future. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> I agree. And so, I mean, that, that is what it is. And so as someone who wants to build curriculum, you don't want to be at the front of a classroom. You want to be on the, on the back end. You want to be building curriculums. What can educators be doing to be culturally competent in, um, so outside of just integrating hip hop into education, because it's so much more than that, what can they be doing to diversifying the talks that they're having, um, diversifying how they talk about diversity in family structure, how they talk about all these different things that are not unique to the Black community, but are more prevalent in the Black community? Oh, there's so many different things. First, <laughs> um, if you're a white teacher and you want to learn more about Black students, um, don't, if you're always calling on your Black friends, pay your black friends because it's emotionally taxing always having to educate um dang um what was i saying <laughs> what was the question again? <laughs> oh no no in the, in the we're just kind of talking about what teachers can be doing regardless of their oh. so if they're white or they're black what they can be doing to better um make their their classroom culturally competent oh sorry okay yes also too changing the language of how we talk about um, households. Um, I grew up in a multi-generational household where my great-aunt raised me, and it was very hard to express to teachers how I cannot talk about my parents. Of like, oh, let's talk to your mother or your father. We have to understand, so that's one, is changing the language of how, um, using um, general terms like guardians, or um, to talk about households. Um, also give students an opportunity to lead. As students, if you, um, if one, what makes a good educator is reevaluating your curriculum and modifying it or changing your curriculum to make sure that all students understand. Mm -hmm. um, you listen to, listen to students, ask them, how do you learn this? Or like, what can I improve? What, what are things that um, relate? Because like teachers, um, I decided not to be a teacher because, um, well, I can tell you about my experience in high school. I wanted to be, a, when I went initially went to college, I initially wanted to be a special education teacher. I had an amazing experience with um, some amazing um, teachers at a local primary elementary school. And Mr. Moman, Mr. Um, Wise, Mr. Cotton, um, where, they just didn't, it wasn't like an, a special, I've been in special education classrooms, but they treated the students like they mattered. They asked them, um, they broke all stigmas. All the, when, when you go into the classroom, the stigmas, the stigma of being in special education classrooms were broken. And when I went to college, that program, I saw no one, it was, it was probably two more black people, but all of them were white teachers trying to teach black students. And the classes and the education courses weren't diverse in how they were teaching, telling white students to teach black students or students of color in general. And it was very hard um, to watch that because it's just like, 
what are we doing? And so when we talk about revamping curriculum, we also have to revamp how we teach teachers. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've had some conversations on the, on the podcast about what it looks like to have um, proper teacher education, because I think that's mm-hmm. another, that's a whole nother episode. Like that's mm-hmm. a whole nother yeah. thing for us to talk about of how we prepare teachers to work with students of color. Um, the amount of times that I have heard that there are programs out there teaching teachers how to be teachers and not addressing race. You're just like, wait, what? Yes. yes. Possible? And so teacher preparation is absolutely incredibly important. And so um, we've talked about so much and we've gotten so much out of this conversation. And I think what we're, what we're rounding it out to is we need to be educators that can support students in supporting themselves. We have mm-hmm. to create students who know how to support themselves. And, and, that, and that looks like across the board. I think for me, um, having the experience of going to a quote unquote blue ribbon school. Um, a, 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 oh, oh, yeah. What is how, oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah, blue ribbon school. That's how Atlanta ended up in the cheating scandal. I was a student in the Atlanta Public Schools cheating scandal, all because we wanted to be blue ribbon schools. The the superintendent wanted schools to be to um, blue ribbon schools so bad that she encouraged the teachers to cheat on standardized tests. And I received, this happened in fifth grade. And so that, that's why I made the transition from a public school to a charter school. And with that, I received a letter in my 11th grade year talking about, oh, you, you may have been heavily impacted by a cheating scandal, all because of the impact of wanting to be no child left behind in blue ribbon school. So I understand, I understand it. Having been someone who went to a blue ribbon school, um, I understand that those spaces aren't doing it right either. We have to come to a consensus that we don't want to transform schools in inner cities and in uh, low-income communities and in communities of color. We don't want to transform our schools to look exactly like those schools because they're not doing it right either. They're not allowing their students to come in and be their whole selves. They're not allowing their students to... to um, they are modifying their students' experience as well. And so we have to, as a collective, pushing for the education system. Black on Black education doesn't want only Black kids to get a good education. We just understand that Black people are disproportionately negatively affected by the functionalist idea of what a school should look like or how we should teach children or what t- children should learn. And so kind of just to round out the conversation, I want you to talk a little bit about um what we can be doing to implement student voice into the curriculum because i think that's a start to having better culturally competent um curriculums that's a that's a start to having more students showing up as their whole selves when they have a a stake in the curriculum that they're learning can i say something right quick before i get to that topic um about what you just said about blue room school and that's why the topic of school choice is so controversial Mm. it's because you have one argument saying why don't we put more funding into our public schools and let students um, go to the communities they are going to instead of, cause like um, there's a um, movie called Backpack Full of Cash. So every time a student moves from one school to the next school, you, they're essentially, so let's say a school, um, students in the $7,000 $7, a head. So $7,000 a student. So that's essentially 
students leaving. So like if 32 students leave, that's $7,000 per student. So mm. also too, we have to keep that in mind too, of like how funding works. And I don't think people understanding how funding works. Funding, teachers get, most teachers in most states, especially Florida, are paid based on the average of those standardized test scores. Um, so teachers don't get bonuses if they don't reach a certain, if their class doesn't reach a certain amount. And also too, when we talk about Blue Ribbon School and everything, we have to talk about how funding is largely based and how funding is a business and how schools have um, operated in the United States more as a business instead of an education, public education system. And, to, and how we can implement student voice and go to the topic of student voices. Representation. Um, we, you can't implement student voices until students know that they, their voices matter. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky to have that my first teachers were black, so kindergarten, preschool. But as high school and middle school went on, um, I started to see white teachers. And when I um, went to college, it was such a um, a hard experience trying to advocate for myself because, excuse me, um, because they didn't understand, and so representation. So um, that's what, so largely why I um, worked two years with faculty and staff to define student workshops, whether it's working with disabilities, student activist workshops on my campus because representation. Bringing leaders um, who are Black, who are um, of Asian descent to campus allows students to understand that they too can have a voice. My friend Sinead is 21, running a global nonprofit for youth patient advocacy for people with chronic illnesses. Oh, she should. Um, check out the Health Advocacy Summit. Um, and with that, she does free um, pop-up summits every year, um, most of them around the state. And I have a friend who's very passionate about mental health and um, minority mental health, and she has a mental illness, but she didn't feel like she had a voice until my mentor, Carrie Gay, can. Carrie Gray um, came to campus and talked about bleeding identity politics, the intersection between our identities and policy. And so just with that small, that within those 24 hours, you can see that students. And so like also too, diversifying, diversifying the curriculum of who has been taught. No shade, I respect MLK, but we also have to recognize that there were also different leaders within the Black um, the civil rights movement, and also too that other movements stem from the civil rights movement. The disability rights movement was heavily funded by the Black Panthers. Um, when we talk about, um, especially with everything going on, why are we only quoting MLK? Um, mm -hmm. An MLK quote is not, it's not equivocal to allyship. So why are we talking about John Lewis, um, Coretta Scott King, Rosa Parks, Claudette sure. Colvin? Like, the amount of people who don't know a black woman before Kamala Harris ran for president, like yes, Charlotte, yes, Charlotte, yes, yes. Actually, there's a movie, um, a show with um, sorry, Uzo Duba. Um, I think it's Miss America, where um, on Hulu, if check it out now, where Uzo is playing Shirley Chosen, and yes, we don't like, yes, she was so woman, yes, always Shirley. Um, <laughs> Shirley bring a chair, bring yeah. a chair. Yes, and like um, we don't talk about the different movements and like how um, 
I was reading a book called The Color Wall and how it's talking just we like also to like if we um and there's also the stigma to uh, I think student voices it's like stu- most most African American students uh, I know for me have this sense of um hopelessness because most of us don't know where we come from mm. and so I can't point on a map I remember being asked by Tobio also like I'm Dominican where are you from I don't know. Mm. So I'm in many spaces are trying to reconnect with Af- different African cultures, whether it's Nigerian, Sierra Leone, and um, Senegalese, trying to find some sense of identity. Mm. And so student voice can just be taking them to a civil rights museum to understand that there are m- many different things happening. TED Talks um, mm-hmm. helped me. Um, just Same for a single story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, Chimamanda, oh, yes. That, yeah, that definitely. Chimamanda DG is very, very, um, like, student voice, and also literature. Are we, um, are we, um, student voices? Are we suggesting readings? I have, um, a teacher, um, where I learned about Dolores Huerta, um, and how she was the real backbone of the former workers' movement, the former workers' movement. Um, and how women have been the the um, implemented. I know I'm going on a lot, but implemented student voices. If we show the students that they can build their own table, mm-hmm. then we have successfully shown them that they can implement to their voices. Mm-hmm. There's so many leaders, and another thing about implemented student voices is we have to encourage students to be civ- to um, participate in civic engagement. There's no reason why in some of these policy making things, the youngest person in the room is 50 or like that. At, I'm 22 and my goal is to be on the school board um, by 25. And I want to be the youngest person in the room because I am close enough in age to know the education experience, but then also too, um, to be a change of voice. Um, no one um, from what I've read in Atlanta Public Schools, no one on that board is has went to school to Atlanta public school and so my biggest connection is like are you connecting with student voices also too about connecting how are you connecting with the students within your districts um what projects um I haven't really I've seen some um board members be active but like there are a lot of members were like after two years what do you have to show and it's really scary that we are electing people and we, what, what are they doing with the votes and like just voting, student voices and can include having them um, survey, like feedback. Um, I know some organizations who run back on student feedback, whether it's pre-test, post-test, um, just to understand wh- what went right and what went wrong so that we can always level up. Like, like um, Sierra said, level up, level up. Because it's the best way to get do it like absolutely and so i love that you kind of went detailed oriented with that because now you're giving people tangible steps to take from what you said and implement into their classrooms um i think like it's crazy to me that that people don't understand that that a black woman ran for president before kamala harris like Mm -hmm. don't understand that there are just so much there's so much historical concepts like it's funny that you brought up the color of law i'm literally reading it right now i just started it morning like there's just so much knowledge out there and it doesn't require that you read a 350 page book but if you go and you look at a people's history of 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 
the United States by Howard Zinn, and you take a chapter out of there, you make kids think more. And so, but implementing their voice into the conversation um, is showing that you care about the experiences that they have had in their life. When you when you put this this literature out there, you explain to them like the history of our country and then the history of their people. They're going to want to to learn more. They're going to want to know more. They're going to ask more questions. And so, just be really vigilant about that. Um, is being more vigilant about that as an educator is going to allow students to feel more empowered to implement their voice. And then if you give them the space to implement into the curriculum, they will take it up when they feel like you actually care and you're actually going to do something. That's the biggest thing I've heard from students um, to talking about like, oh, why don't you run for, why don't you run for student council or something like that? Well, it's not going to do anything anyway. They don't believe that the adults are actually going to hold them um, to a high standard. They don't believe that, that adults are actually going to listen to what they have to say. So that has to be a school culture that we change. And so thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for giving your insights. Thank you so much for being vulnerable with your experience. And so the, we end the podcast the same way every time. Um, we switch roles and you become the interviewer and I become the interviewee and you can ask me um, a question about myself or about my thoughts or about black and black education. Okay. Um, what are your thoughts um, about implementing student voices? Because like we come from two different states. So like my experiences might be different from yours. Absolutely. Um, so I am have lived in New York my entire life. I was born in Rockland County, um, which New York City people would call upstate, but it's not really upstate. And I live in Westchester County now, and I finished my K-12 experience in, in Westchester. And I think what I would say about implementing student voice is, especially in a K-12 setting, it's so much easier than higher education when you really think about it. Because higher education, you take, a, you take a semester of classes, you're done with it, you, go, you move on to the next semester. It's kind of harder to, to have the professor um, have time in that small, in that short semester to get student feedback. But when you're in the K-12 system, you have the whole year to work with the student, to work with students. You can have students come in early, two weeks early to come and give their, their, their feedback on certain things. You can have surveys, it's so accessible now. Google Forms is free. There's just so many different ways to implement student voice. And I think the best way of doing that is one, saying that you're gonna implement their voice and actually doing it. And then in terms of curriculum specifically, I believe that we should be having the first couple of days of school being about what is it that you want to learn. And, and it's going to take a while until the standardized tests are gone and those are no longer mm -hmm. a factor in, in um, students' lives. We're in a opt-out movement. But you're, we're also in a u unique position. They canceled the test this year. They need mm -hmm. to cancel them next year because kids are going to be far behind. Just don't bring them back. Like we're in a unique, unique position and that, and that needs to kind of be pushed forward. But when those tests aren't there, it allows teachers to say, students, what do you want to learn? What am I, how am I going to best prepare you for the world after K through 12? Cause in real life, our K through 12 education, we can talk to person after person, after person, after person. And there are certain things that they can say that they got from that, that they still use. But for the most part, the things that people learn in their K through 12, it's how they felt in that time. It's who they connected with in the those times that they still use and remember. The content is much less of that. So what I think implementing student voice does is it actually prepares students to go out into the world and be ready and be more ready than they are with, with the preparation that they're getting now. Yes, I agree. And then um, I guess my last question is, how do you see Black on Black education being implemented in other states? 
Mm, absolutely. So um, most people, if, unless you live in a very rural rural place, there's a YMCA somewhere around you, right? And boys and girls clubs. What'd you say? I was a boys and girls club kid too. Oh, yes. oh, or boys and girls club or a, um, what's the other ones? Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. Well, we want for one day there to be a black on black education in every neighborhood. And not because mm-hmm. black on black education is only for black people, but it's because it is for and in service of black life and minority life of people of color's lives. And so there are so much that students do not learn in, in school and we wanna be a part of providing those supplemental education materials like financial literacy, like uh, proper sexual education, like um, goal setting and all of these sorts of things that are just like so important, uh, mental health resources, like all these things that are so important that get pushed the back burner um, for students in schools. We want to be a space where after school, before school, there's there's options for you. And so that's what I see in when I'm old and gray, what black on black education will look like. Um, we got a long way to go until then, but I thank you so much for your time. I thank you so much for your energy and close us out with whatever you gotta close us out with. Oh, thank you. And I want to thank you too. Um, the fact that we are recent graduates and you have inspired me so much mm. and thank you for your work. I really do appreciate it. And I can't wait to share this with the world um, because it's only up from here. You are doing amazing, girl. And I will take that back and throw it right back on you because I think that you um, have a voice that is powerful. You have an experience that is powerful and um, you are a force of nature and will be and will continue to be. So thank you so much. Um, Thank you. See you guys next week. Have a good day.